the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show at this Christmas week. James Blend is producing today's program. Sam Maupin is engineering. And as promised, I wanted to take a moment and introduce Sam Maupin, who is the new engineer for the Georgine Rice Show. We are so thrilled to have him with us. And uh, he is taking the role that uh, Clark Hilton used to play. I won't say he's replacing him because none of us uh, is replaceable. But uh, Sam, you came to us from the Seattle area where you worked at a Salem station. I know your lips are moving, but I'm not hearing you speak. Okay, can you Okay, there you go. <laughs> All right, wonderful. Yeah, I was in Salem, Seattle for about four or five years, give or take, somewhere in there, and doing similar things to here, except I was only on the weekend. So the doors opened here in Portland, and I am happy to be here on the team. So far, so good, but you know, still a little bit of learning here and there, so... No, thank you for rolling with the punches. Oh, absolutely. You're doing a great job, and we look forward to the weeks and months ahead. Welcome, Sam. Glad to have you with us. Good to be here. All right, today we're going to take a look at some of the day's headlines. We'll also uh, hear from Gilbert Gleason. He's the author of Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott. Really a beautiful story of a missionary couple uh, whose name might be familiar to you in association to another more familiar name. More on that when he joins us. In the second half of this hour, and I'm going to have a conversation with Pastor Scott Gilchrist with Southwest Bible Church. He's the pastor there. He's also the teacher of the downtown Bible class. We're going to talk about Christmas and the long-awaited Savior. So I'm looking forward to that conversation with him uh, during this um, this Christmas week. So looking forward to that. First, taking a look at some of the day's news, Mr. Manchin, the senator, his media critics predict that his build back better no vote is a threat to the future of American democracy. Might be just a slight overstatement. Well, some liberal media commentators predicted on Sunday that West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin's vote against the president's build back better plan, which comes as no surprise to anyone who's been following what's happened there, could very well spell the end of democracy. Manchin announced uh, on Fox News Sunday that he's going to be a definitive no on voting for the Build Back Better plan after lengthy debate. I've always said this, Brett, uh, that's the person who was interviewing him. If I can't go home and explain to the people of West Virginia, I can't vote for it, he told guest host Brett Baer. And I cannot vote to continue with this piece of legislation. I just can't. I've tried everything humanly possible. I can't get there. Well, Manchin acknowledged that there were aspects of the bill that he was in favor of, but it was just too hefty for him to justify voting for it. There's a lot of good, but that bill is a mammoth piece of legislation, he added, pointing out that it's not even being voted on like a normal bill, but being pushed through the budget reconciliation process. Well, reactions to Manchin's vote matched the uh, treatment he had been receiving for his disagreement with the president and the more progressive members of the Democrat Party. Nancy Pelosi eyed a vote early next year after Senator Manchin's major blow to Build Back Better. She's quite optimistic that it can and will pass. Republicans also sounded off a Senator Manchin's Build Back Better resistance, calling him a sane, moderate Democrat. 
Representative Byron Donalds called Manchin's killing of Build Back Better great news for the country, saying the bill was trash. And that's a quote. I probably wouldn't have chosen that language. Liberal pundits reacted to Manchin's no on the Build Back Better Act, saying it leaves a lot to process. And White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki slammed Manchin's sudden and inexplicable reversal, which was neither sudden or inexplicable. Uh, Anyway, on Build Back Better, saying it was, well, those two things, sudden and inexplicable. Well, the outgoing National Institutes of Health director dismissed the Wuhan lab leak theory as a distraction on his last day in office. The outgoing National Institutes of Health director Dr. Francis Collins said on Sunday that he's sorry the Wuhan lab theory has become such a huge distraction for the country, despite there being no evidence to support it. He joined Fox News Sunday on his last day in office after more than a decade in the agency's top position. Collins said in October of this year that accusations surrounding the agency's involvement in gain and function research and the Wuhan Institute of Virology had absolutely nothing to do with his resignation. The United States recently surpassed 50 million COVID-19 cases and 800,000 deaths since the start of the pandemic. And as for the Omicron variant, Collins said the U.S. should brace for a world of trouble the next couple of months based on the higher transmissibility than the previous strains, which pale by comparison. The outgoing NIH uh, director says hundreds of thousands would have died from COVID if the U.S. hadn't listened to him. Meanwhile, Senator Cory Booker has tested positive for COVID, as has Elizabeth Warren. Move over, Superman. A new study finds COVID-19 super immunity is possible after breakthrough infections. The Pfizer COVID-19 pill may not see approval for months despite impressive data. And Dr. Fauci says the U.S. definitely saw variants coming, but Omicron mutations are unprecedented. He was responding to the vice president who said, we never saw this coming. Chinese tennis star Peng Shua has denied ever accusing anyone of sexual assault. The Chinese tennis star on Sunday denied ever accusing anyone. Uh, Peng gave an exclusive interview with Singaporean outlet um, during which she said she had never said or written that anyone sexually assaulted her. I have to clarify, uh, uh, clearly stress this point, she said in the video. Peng is 35. She made headlines in, uh, in November, rather, when she wrote a lengthy post on Chinese social media platform Weibo that alleged former Vice Premier Zhang uh, Ge- Gaoli forced her to a sexual relationship despite uh, repeated refusals following a round of tennis three years ago. She further claimed that his wife guarded the door during the incident. She now says that it never happened and she never made the accusation. California authorities announced new information in a 24-year-old cold case. It's amazing how that's possible. And Oxford University is being blasted for considering hiring based on potential employees' woke score of academics. One professor complained you have to go out of your way to virtue signal. Former Republican Georgia Senator Johnny Isaacson has died. He was 76. And Quidditch enthusiasts sounded the alarm as the Harry Potter author controversy is spiraling. A Kentucky suspect has been arrested for stealing from tornado victims. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll continue to look at a few headlines and then we'll hear from Pastor um, I should say uh, former pastor Gilbert Gleason, author of Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott. And in the second hour, Pastor Scott Gilchrist about Christmas and the anticipated coming of the Messiah. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Looking forward to a conversation with Gilbert Gleason, author of Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott, the other brother. That's coming up in the next couple of segments. And then at 5 o'clock, we'll talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist, the uh, pastor of Southwest Bible Church and the teacher of the downtown Bible class. We're going to talk about the long-awaited one, uh, the Messiah, as we look forward to celebrating Christmas later this week. Well, continuing to wind our way through some of the news, there's a tech company that introduced a COVID microchip to verify the wearer's vaccine status. And spilling the tea, there is a cyberbullying tactic that's plaguing schools, parents, and students. School gossip Instagram accounts are raising questions about educators' role in policing students' social media activity. And the Netherlands is going into lockdown again, this time to curb Omicron. An ex-CEO has been charged with embezzling some $15 million to fund a lavish lifestyle. And a Portland commissioner, Joanne Hardesty, is defending herself as a budget hawk after a second creditor sued her over personal debt. Boeing sold its Washington campus for $100 million. Governor Greg Abbott is overseeing the beginning of a Texas border wall. The governor visited Starr County on Saturday to inaugurate the first stretch of a border wall being built by the state, calling it an unprecedented investment in border security. Construction crews on site said about 880 feet of barrier have been installed as of Saturday afternoon. And South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem has filed a bill to protect girls' sports. As more colleges see transgender athletes winning in girls' sports, South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem joined Fox & Friends on Friday to provide details on her state's new legislation to protect girls' sports. This issue is about basic fairness. Together, we will make sure, she says, that only girls were playing girls' sports. Thank you for your support. As a former athlete and a girl, I applaud her efforts. Well, Oxford University is under scrutiny for filing for rather hiring based on woke academics. Professor at the University of Oxford are repeatedly furious over a proposed a proposal being considered that would require all academic appointees to have demonstrated a past commitment to equality, diversity and inclusion. Now, how they're defined is what makes it controversial. I think we would all agree equality, diversity and inclusion are good things, but it's being redefined in ways that uh, these professors and others find uh, troubling. A consultation document from the university's race equity task force reportedly states the importance of embedding EDI, equality, diversity and inclusion, into all recruitment. An Oxford University spokesman stressed the document was a consultation rather than an agreed strategy. After reviewing student and staff responses, the task force will draw up a universally wide strategy which they hope will be approved by Oxford's governing body by the end of the academic year. Well, the number one cause of death of adults 18 to 45 today is fentanyl. More than COVID, more than motor vehicle accidents, more than cancer, and more than suicide. Between 2020 and 2021, nearly 79,000 people between the ages of 18 and 45, 37,208 in Uh, 2020 and 41,587 in 2021 died of fentanyl overdoses. The data analysis from Opioid Awareness Organization, Families Against Fentanyl show. Well, the Los Angeles District Attorney Gascon has launched a diversion program for youth offenders. His critics call it a get-out-of-jail-free card for juvenile offenders. The Deputy G- DA, Jonathan Hatami, a longtime critic of Gascoigne, says 
Uh, You're basically saying we're going to give you a slap on the wrist. Bill uh, Mulligan, he points out, according to this policy, prosecutors in the LADA's office tell me if a juvenile were to follow you home, pull a knife on you, threaten to kill you, then use force to rob you, and they are later arrested, they would be eligible for diversion rather than prosecution. Well, San Francisco's mayor has declared a state of emergency to combat rising crime. The New York Post reports the social experiment with people's lives is over. The defund the police mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, just did an 180 on Lombard Street. I hope the New York City Council is paying attention. San Francisco embarked down its disastrous defund the police, fund other agencies road last year, and it didn't turn out well. Its police department shrank and violence, thefts, open air drug dealing and overdose deaths soared. So now the frustrated mayor announced her plan to reinstate the uh, uh, the police officers and get tough on criminals. In other news, Vice President Kamala Harris erupted in an interview when asked who is the real president. Well, Vice President Kamala Harris erupted during a friendly interview this week with Charlemagne the God. That's his name. When the media personality asked Harris who was the real president of the United States, referring to President Biden or Senator Manchin. Well, when Charlemagne first tried to ask the question, an aide for the vice president jumped in and appeared, apparently tried to suggest that they couldn't hear him and therefore they needed to end the interview. No, 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 no. It's Joe Biden, Harris erupted. And don't start talking like a Republican, she said, about asking whether or not he's the president. And it's Joe Biden. It's Joe Biden. It's Joe Biden. And I'm vice president and my name is Kamala Harris, end quote. By the way, at the end of the uh, interview, uh, Charlemagne said he this was the um, Kamala Harris he had missed since she was a D.A. some years back. Kevin McCarthy plans to launch seven investigations into the Biden administration on day one if the GOP wins the House back. So, again, the people's business apparently on back burner. The Biden administration has an epiphany on COVID-19. Sadly, it was too late on the menu today. Long after it would uh, do any good, the Biden administration realizes that public discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic shouldn't be focused on the total number of cases and instead should be focused on severe infections and hospitalizations with a net negative of a 21 approval rating. Young voters have abandoned the president. Republicans are eyeing a red wave for governor's races and the foreign born population is soaring to a new record under Joe Open Borders Biden. Well, a new Department of Justice report reveals that prison rates are plummeting to the lowest level since 1992. Meanwhile, at least 16 cities are seeing record homicides in 2021. America's wealthiest pastor, Kenneth Copeland, who's worth about $770 million, dodged property taxes on his $7 million mansion home by saying it's a clergy residence. Not altogether clear that's legal. Nicholas Sandman reached a settlement with NBC in the Covington Catholic High School controversy. And tennis star Peng Shui now denies ever accusing anyone of sexual assault. The 35-year-old made headlines back in November. Well, on this day in history, 1803, the Louisiana Purchase is completed as ownership of the territory is formally transferred from France to the United States. 1860 on this day in history, South Carolina becomes the first state to secede from the Union as all 169 delegates to a special convention in Charleston vote in favor of separation. 1929, excuse me, 1924, Adolf Hitler is released from prison after serving nine months for his role in the Beer Hall Putsch. 1963, the Berlin Wall is open for the first time to West Berliners who are allowed one-day visits to relatives in the eastern sector for the holidays. 1989, the United States launches Operation Just Cause, sending troops into Panama to topple the government of General Manuel Noriega. 
1999, on this day in history, the Vermont Supreme Court rules that homosexual couples are entitled to the same benefits and protections as wedded couples of the opposite sex. 2001, the U.N. Security Council authorizes a multinational force for Afghanistan. On this day in history, 2005, a federal judge rules that intelligent design could not be mentioned in biology classes in a Pennsylvania public school district, delivering a stinging attack on the Dover area school board. 2013, a federal judge strikes down Utah's ban on same-sex marriage. And finally, on this day in history, 2017, the U.S. House gives final congressional approval to a $1.5 trillion tax overhaul, the biggest package of tax changes in a generation, and the first major legislative achievement of President Trump and House and Senate Republicans. Some Republicans, however, warn of a potential backlash against an overhaul that offers corporations and wealthy taxpayers the biggest benefits. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up, uh, we're going to hear from Gilbert Gleason. He's the author of and relative uh, of um, Bert and Colleen Elliott. His book is titled Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott. You may recognize the last name, but not uh, the relationship Bert had with the more uh, famous Elliott. But his long service as a missionary is quite Remarkable. And the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Pastor Scott Gilchrist of Southwest Bible Church and the Downtown Bible Class about the long awaited Messiah. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast, it's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm looking forward to a conversation with Gilbert Gleason. He is the author of Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott. 20th century martyr Jim Elliott is familiar to most of us, um, but his brother, perhaps less so. The book is about um, Bert Elliott, Jim's brother, who is also a missionary. Uh, and uh, Gilbert Gleason um, is a nephew by marriage of Bert and Colleen Elliott. Uh, he served as their pastor for 30 years. He benefited personally from their friendship, support, mentoring. And he, in turn, served and supported them, encouraging and assisting on the home front and through hands-on experience during his several visits to the ministry and the front lines in Peru, where they served for many, many years. He's married to Sue. They live here in Portland, have three married children and four grandchildren. He joins us to talk about his amazing book, which, by the way, uh, I would recommend as a great Christmas gift with a forward by Randy Alcorn, Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott. Thank you so much for joining us. It's good to, good to talk to you, Georgine. Thank you. Well, this um, conversation is a long time coming. I've intended to have you on for a, a long period of time, so I'm really delighted to have you on today. Let's begin by talking a bit about your relationship with, with Uncle Bert and Aunt Colleen Nate. Yes, excuse me, so Elliot. I, yes, so I married their their niece Sue Elliot, who's now Sue Gleason, and um, have enjoyed a relationship with them, a friendship with them for forty plus years, and served as their pastor for the last thirty two years of their life. And it was it was a joy to know them, to be there with, to be with them with family times, and and just to enjoy their mentorship and their love, and frankly their support. I really felt like. Like, especially Aunt Colleen was always in my corner when I needed her, and, and Uncle Bert was always an enthusiast and a, and a support and a, an encouragement to me through the years. And so and it's been a delight to be a part of, the, of their lives. You know, most of us are familiar with Brother Jim Elliott. 
uh, who, along with uh, three other missionaries, lost his life in Ecuador. It's a familiar story to most followers of Jesus who've been around for a while. Bert is his brother. He's lesser known, but has a tremendous testimony along with his wife, uh, Colleen. Much of the book is the um, is the retelling of their story. But in their own words, uh, Colleen was an avid letter writer. And so in addition to your telling the story, we have an opportunity to hear their voice as well. So when I start, first started writing, I wrote a chapter and my wife read it. And she said, <clears throat> she said, you've missed it. You need to let them tell their own story. And so because she grew up listening to especially Aunt Colleen's letters, sometimes Uncle Bert's, but mainly Aunt Colleen's letters through the years. And she is a vivid writer, and mm-hmm. and so I took as much as I could. I let them write their own story, and um, and it, it's fascinating that the pictures they give. When she wrote, she wrote home about once a month, as often missionaries do, and they were not just how how are you? I'm fine. They were vivid and just lengthy discussions about what was going on and the people and experiences, and and um, so so indeed they do tell their own stories, much as I was able to let them. You know, I was just delighted to have the opportunity to get to know them in that way. In addition to your writing, painting a vivid picture of this remarkable couple whose names we probably wouldn't have known had you not drawn attention uh, to them in this way. And I know that they were widely known in certain circles, but these are real pillars of the faith uh, that I think we all need to get to know. Well, let's begin by um, giving you an opportunity to tell us a little bit about the childhood home of the Elliots. So they grew up in they they together grew up on the in East Portland. Um, Bert's home is on the east side of of Mount Tabor, down on the lower side of Mount Tabor. Graduated from Benson High School. Colleen went to Jefferson High School. They met at, at church at the time it was called Grace and Truth Chapel. Today it's called Grace Bible Fellowship, and that's where they met as as early teenagers, as young people, and knew each other, and and then. Just slowly began to fall in love with with one another. They were, even as young people, serious about their faith. They were taught well in the church. Their homes reflected a, a Christian worldview. So they had, both of them had really strong foundations. I noted that Bert had to make a decision about the course of his life early on, business versus ministry, military service versus teaching the scriptures. Talk a little bit about the early decisions that each of them made that resulted in this remarkable missionary ministry they were involved in for 75% of their lives. So Bert, during World War II, Bert and his older brother Bob, who's Sue's father, um, were conscientious objectors during World War II, and so they served uh, first in Northern California, then back in in Maryland, um, doing things that the conscientious objectors do it, did, and that that shaped his his early life and built some good friendships. And then, as they as they got ready, and even in that time, there there were hints of a seriousness on Bert's part mm-hmm. to follow the Lord in um, in ministry. And he, he saw, just an aside, he saw the, the potential in his younger brother, Jim, and he said, he said, I'll stay home and support you if you'll um, go into ministry for, for God. But uh, the Lord opened the doors for Bert himself to go. And so even the, one of the things that's interesting to me is in their courtship, they were separated about half the time that they're what we'd call their dating relationship. Um, Colleen was down at Biola doing the, the School of Missionary Medicine course down at Biola. Bert was was um, doing 
um, preparation, mentoring under his father, preaching under his father's mentorship, and then he went for a year at Multnomah. But even in that time, the focus was on not just, you know, starry-eyed, gleamy, you know, we love each other. Mm -hmm. It was on how can God use us together for service. And there's even a letter where where Bert writes to, to Colleen and says, um, are we serious about ministry? Are we serious about going to prove that's where God calls us? If I were to go on my own, are you serious enough that you would follow with me and follow after me and do that? And if you're not, should we be getting married? It was those kind of questions that that where they they saw their relationship not just as you know the fulfillment of a love for each other, but but a, more how can we together serve God better than we can separately? And they just were convinced of that. And so their whole, mainly their whole, their whole courtship was all in preparation for the ministry. So they got married in January of 1949, and their honeymoon was a trip to Peru. They, <laughs> they ended up, their honeymoon cottage was sharing a, a, the living room of a missionary family that they were living with down there. And, and um, their, their gifts were all, in, their wedding gifts were all in view of what are we going to take to Peru? And so they were they were very um, focused on the ministry. God, they really felt God had called them to, and on preparation for that ministry. Yeah, really remarkable. One of the things that I appreciated about your telling of their story was the love that they had for one another uh, that continued through the remainder of their lives together. They both passed away in their eighties. And their love for each other as they had served in ministry, their connection to one another was really admirable. Um, and I thought the, the title of the book, in addition to pointing to their love for ministry and people and serving God, their love for one another was evident as well. Well, um, Luis Palau told the story that there at his crusade down in, in Lima in 2004, and he he was he had brought them down to honor them during this crusade. So they were there, and, and they walk on the stage holding hands, and and um, and Luis says, "You really love that woman, don't you?" <laughs> he said, "When you don't have any children, you can just pour all your love on her." And it was it was true. They just they had this this unceasing deep love for one another and appreciation for one another. Yes. You write of them, Bert and Colleen serve as the right kind of examples of average followers of Jesus, proving that for most of us, substantial supernatural impact is achieved through simple daily faithfulness, listening to Jesus and loving people in his name. And that's an apt description of what they did serving as missionaries in Peru. Uh, I noted that um, they honeymooned in, in Peru in anticipation of missionary work there. There were stories on boats and planes and trains. Uh, just doing the work of ministry. Tell us a little bit about the, the work they did in establishing a significant number, I believe 150 plus churches in Peru, uh, serving there for the, the bulk of each of their lives. So they started out in the jungle in, in Lagunas. They started on, a, on the jungle there, and they, they just developed an itinerant um, ministry. In the, they, they got a jungle boat. And the jungle didn't have, at that time, didn't have roads. You know, the road was the river. And they would go on this river, and they'd go up, up river or down river, and they'd be gone for two or three or four weeks at a time. And they'd stop at these little villages, 
And first thing in the morning, they'd have their devotions, they'd have time of prayer, they'd have breakfast, and then it was, the boat was open, and and um, the nationals would come in, and Colleen would give them, would use her medical training to do all kinds of things, give shots, deliver babies, um, pull, not pull teeth, Uncle Bert would pull the teeth, but she would, and she would, um, you know, pull a, 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 fix a bullet wound, or or a, night, a, a snake bite, or treat malaria, all those kinds of things. And Uncle Bert would pull teeth by the thousands, and then they'd, they'd do that in the morning, and then in the afternoon they'd visit people in the in the village, in a little church there, and then at night they'd they would um, they'd have open air meetings either in the in the little building the church might have, and they'd have two or three um, people would come to know Christ, and then they leave them a Bible and a couple songs by memory, and they go to the next village and next, and they would every three months or six months they'd come back and visit those little villages, and they would slowly develop churches, and of course it was slow. And at times of discouraging, and you go in and you find out that, you know, one of the one of the elders had had um, fallen into sin, and they'd have to discipline, and they just slowly um, develop these little these little churches. So, the one who really stepped in and took their place down there, Pablo Sinepatoris, who was Peruvian and lived with them during his high school years, and incidentally, Aunt Colleen had delivered when he was a baby. Mm-hmm. He recently told me he was back in the jungle, one of those villages, and there's an 82-year-old lady there who came back to Christ in their meetings, and she had originally been baptized by Bert years ago, fallen away, come back to Christ, and then in the same meetings, her daughter came to the Lord, too. So the, the impact of their ministry is continuing on even to this day. So that's, they started out, for the first group portion of time, they're in the jungle. They came home after after six years. Um, for a furlough, and on the way home, they saw Jim and Elizabeth um, in Ecuador on the way home, and that was right before Jim was killed. And when they went back there, they were motivated by his death to say, we need to expand our ministry. And by happenstance and God's providence, they, they visited one of the mountain cities, fell in love with the mountain people, and then with the coastal people. And so from then on, they would spend about half a year in, in the jungle, and they'd have spent half a year up in the mountains on the coast just doing the same thing, going to these little villages, getting to know them, walking, you know, five or six hours to get into a village, staying overnight, having meetings, and then going back out, and then slowly developing this ministry um, of just church planting and church planting and church planting. Yeah. So. We need to take a quick break, but I'll... Is, the 150 is not their number. They would never, they could, they would never give a number to it. But as far as we can estimate, that's about that's how many about right. We're going to take yeah. a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. The okay. word that comes to mind when I think about this couple is faithfulness and perseverance, persistence. Quick break. We'll be back to continue our conversation with Gilbert Gleason. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. 
Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Gilbert Gleason. He's the author of Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott, Bert being the brother of Jim Elliott. Uh, the two of them being similar in some ways, dissimilar in others, but both faithful servants of the Lord. In his forward to the book, Randy Alcorn writes of Bert Elliott, he wasn't a sprinter who wins the Olympic gold medal. He was like the clerk or custodian who jogs nine-minute mile, three miles a day, uh, and over his lifetime runs much farther than the pro who retires at 30. Bert and Colleen just kept serving faithfully and joyfully for 62 years a long obedience in the same direction, years of dying daily to self and living moment by moment for Jesus for an audience of one. It is a beautiful story, beautifully told in Love So Amazing. And again, if you're looking for a gift idea that's inspiring and challenging, I know I found myself really thinking about, Lord, am I am I living up to all that you've called me to? And there are times when you just cry, <laughs> just everything. Uh, I went through all the, the full range uh, in the book. So just... Um, a great resource. Uh, we've been talking about the fact that they um, ministered for a very long period of time, established churches in Peru uh, throughout the 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 um, uh, their ministry. Uh, they were recognized by Luis Palau. In fact, there was a festival in Lima, Peru, uh, that Luis Palau invited them to be special guests of, which was an unusual situation for them. They really weren't identified as movers and shakers in missions or in ministry. And yet, as they sat there at that event, they thought about the history of Peru that would never have allowed that kind of gathering years before in the 50s, I think. Uh, this was really quite a uh, an occasion in which they were recognized, but they also recognized what God had done over the course of their many years in ministry. And that was, that was a significant and very meaningful time for them as they as they looked and just saw the changes that God was making and the doors that were open. They had a real special appreciation for Luis and for his ministry mm-hmm. and a friendship there. It's interesting that they said to me, he said, you know, he, he's known around the world for all his big festivals and campaigns. He said the difference he made in our ministry was not the campaigns. It was his radio ministry, because we take these little radios in these little villages and turn them on and people could listen to him as he counseled people. And he said his radio ministry was much more impactful in our in relation to our ministry than his big campaigns. Yeah, and it was sweet to see the relationship that they had, how they encouraged one another uh, throughout. Now, I can imagine as the the couple were aging, moving around in an area that's not well-developed had to become a challenge, yet they continued to minister clear into their 80s. And that's one of the reasons they left the jungle, because the jungle going up and down those those river banks and all of that could be very awkward and difficult as as you aged and but and in their later years so they went to, they moved to Trujillo um, in 18 in 1989 they moved to, to Trujillo which was much more of a of a stay in one place lifestyle but they continued to have people coming into their house day after day after day people living with them that was when they started at a school and that it was never in their dream to start a school and he went down to Argentina, and they saw the, the Christian schools, that, how effective they were down there, and ministering to people. And he came back and said, can we do that here? And he ended up, and he was, he, as a young man, he's a guy that struggled with education. In fact, Western Seminary gave him an honorary doctorate at the end of his life. And mm-hmm. somebody, and he got teased a lot about it because it was hard enough for him to get through school. 
and then he walks out with his honorary doctorate at the end. But but um, just to see the ability for him to look at oppor- and for them to look at opportunities and to see the Lord opening up doors that they never would have thought about. And that that continued their heart to minister, to serve, continued through the remainder of their lives together. It's really quite remarkable. There was no thought of retirement and we're going to do something else. They served the Lord faithfully in ways that that were uh, consistent with their ability, but they were faithful to the very end. And and so so and I went down to visit them near the end of their life and and they would have people come in and they would pray with people and they would they would encourage people. They'd come in for me. He taught in the Bible classes at the end. And so he was he quit preaching a year or two before he passed away. But until then, they were active and she was leading Bible studies. And and yes, they they went up to the end. They they didn't know what the word retirement meant. Yeah. yeah. I like the uh, toward the end of the book, you have a, a chapter on finishing well and you write about um, Jim and. Uh, Bert Elliott, and how as brothers, they were similar, but they were quite different. And I appreciated that you made the comparison to James and John, brothers uh, who were disciples of Jesus. Can you talk a little bit about these two brothers, one who's very well known and might be uh, related to the idea of a son of thunder, and then his brother Bert, who over a very long period of time uh, served faithfully in Peru? So that's an analogy that I heard Bert speak on several times. Um, to groups, and he would compare his his life and Jim's life with that of of James and John. Of of the, they were both sons of thunder. One of them, and and for John or for James, early on, it got him in trouble, and he ended up being beheaded. And and um, but when you look at that, and you look at the the shortness of James's life, was just like his brother Jim, and the length of of Bert's life. And at the end, if you look at the life of John, his reputation is he was, he was an apostle of love. And I see that in Bert, that he was an apostle of love, and he gave, he had that love. And so I would take it, I took it beyond his his mm-hmm. analysis, just the length, and I said, you know, their, their personalities compared it to James and to John. And just the, the faithful and the, the, the sacrificial obedience that both of them experienced. Jim's favorite or famous quote was, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And my question is, because we always think of that in terms of Jim's life and the shortness of his life. But my question is, is that saying as true for the lifelong lived as it was for the young martyr? And I say, yes, it was. And Bert's life and Colleen's life demonstrate that both of them live lives of sacrificial obedience. And Jim's was much more spectacular in terms of the of the death of him and his four friends, and and be, made worldwide news and all that type of thing, and and motivated people to get into ministry, people going to mission field, and yet Bert's life is is just as impactful and mm-hmm. and, and, and over a, a period of sixty two years under the radar, where almost nobody knew who they were except for those that they're ministering to there on the field. It really is a remarkable story. And as I mentioned earlier, I found it really challenging uh, to consider the tremendous sacrifice and uh, level of obedience that they demonstrated throughout their life of ministry. And I asked the Lord to, to reveal to me, am I, am I living up to what you, uh, you want me to do as well? As I mentioned earlier in our conversation, they were inseparable in life. 
Colleen and Bert um, Elliott, they were also, in a sense, inseparable in death. Um, when Bert died, uh, it was expected. She died shortly thereafter. Um, again, just it seemed appropriate that one would follow so closely after the other. And it's, it's. I find in ministry it's not that unusual that a mm-hmm. that a couple, you know, they got a grief and just, you know, they died. But hers was so different in that. Um, Bird died in in February of of 2012, and I was down there um, shortly before he passed away. And I sat down with that Colleen, and I said, you know, when when this when he passes away, and everybody you know is expected except for miracle. And, and I said, when that happens, we want to have a service in Portland. And we'd love to have you come up for the service. So we sat down, and she and I planned her, his service together. So, you know, these are the songs that I want sung. And, and she said, Gilbert, I'd like you to give the message. And so we kind of put it all together. And then I came home, and then he passed away. And so we set the time for six months, six weeks later to the day, of, um, or, or six weeks later one day, for the services. So she came home. She said, yes, I'll come home. She came home. She went to to Wheaton with her sister-in-law, and then she came to Portland, and um, and she was scheduled, I think she was scheduled to be on your show at that time, because she arrived on a Wednesday night, and the funeral was going to be on Saturday, and I and I think she had been scheduled to do an interview with you during that time. And, yes. And, um, and, and she came home on, she had visited some friends on Thursday, she came home, she started to walk up the steps of our house, and she fell down. And fell backwards, and she had a brain concussion, and we rushed her to the hospital. She was on on blood thinner at that point because of um, because she had had a um, a blood clot, and and by the middle of the night, you know, it was obvious they they couldn't stop the bleeding, and they you know they just said, you know, she's she's going to be a vegetable if you. So we made the decision to take her off life support. That was early Friday morning. Mm-hmm. By Friday afternoon. She had passed away, and I was ready for Uncle Bert's death because it was expected. But personally, I really struggled with Aunt yes. Colleen's death because I had expected her. She was always my corner, and I didn't, you know, I, I knew I had the strength to do the service or she was on the front row. And I realized she was going to be there. And it was just, it was a very difficult, uh, short period where I had to talk with the Lord and say, Lord, you've got to help me through this to be able to do yes. both their services. So, Saturday morning, we had a service, and, and Louise Plow graciously came over and and um, gave remembrances. But the first thing I had to do was stand up, begin a service, and say, um, all of you know you're here because Bert passed away, and some of you may not know, and some of them didn't know that Aunt Colleen has passed away, and we did a, a joint memorial service. One of the missionaries that, that had served with them down there had made the comment, she said, you know, when I heard that Uncle Bert passed away, I couldn't believe, I couldn't imagine Aunt Colleen going on without him. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then when she heard Aunt Colleen pass away, she says, "I guess God could imagine that either," and brought her home, and it took her home in a very dramatic way. I mean, yes. so totally unexpected. And so we had her body sent back to Peru, and they're they're laying side by side um, in a in a funeral in a graveyard just outside of. Of Trujillo, and I, I'm hoping to go down next month, and, and I'll be able to see their, where they're buried down there. But yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a dramatic story. Yeah, it certainly is. Well, it is a sweet story, and I hope our listeners will read Love So Amazing, the missionary biography of Bert and Colleen Elliott. Where can our listeners find the book? 
The easiest place to do it is is just look on gilbertgleason.com, and that's my website. It talks about the book. You can order right there. For you Portlanders, Gleason is spelled G-L-E-A-S-O-N. <laughs> not, not like yeah, not the street. street but <laughs> I will like put street, a, but... I'll put a link on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook okay, page so okay. folks can check it out. Thank you so much. You know, and Georgine, for your readers, if if they, tomorrow morning, if they want to order tomorrow morning, I'll put a special 20% discount on their KPDQ21. Put that in a discount code, KPDQ21, and there'll be a 20% discount between now and Christmas Day. Excellent. I will make sure that information is there. Thank you so much, and God bless. Bye-bye. Thank you. God bless you. Bye. we got to take a break for news and traffic. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, the second hour. Well, I have to tell you, I've been looking forward to the conversation I'm about to have with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. He's the senior pastor at Southwest Bible Church and the teacher of the downtown Bible class and has become something of a tradition here. I've asked him to join us to talk about some aspect of Christmas, and he has agreed to do that once again today. And I'm, I'm so grateful. I know pastors are very busy and especially during this time of the year. So, Pastor Scott, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks for having me, Georgine. It, it is becoming kind of a tradition, and I always uh, know it's Christmas time when we're talking on the phone about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. Well, I wanted to talk to you about uh, Jesus being the long-awaited one. Now, we live in a society where we expect things to be available to us fairly quickly. You know, if a promise is made, we want it to be fulfilled within the next two or three minutes, if not 15 minutes. <laughs> so this notion that Jesus was anticipated first by Israel and the rest of the world— over a long period of time, is somewhat foreign to us. And I wondered if we might look at the scriptures and what they tell us about this long anticipation that Israel experienced that we now enjoy the fruit of. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, the whole Bible just reverberates with this promise uh, of this coming Messiah, actually. And I've been meditating on the, uh, the little verse, the little phrase, really, in John 1, where Andrew uh, was pointed to Jesus by by John the Baptist, and he immediately did what you do when you find Jesus, you want to tell others. And he, he, he brought his brother to uh, Peter, and, and he, or to Jesus, and he said, we've found the Messiah. He said it excitedly, and I could only think of the centuries of waiting. Mm. So he is indeed the long-awaited one, and the hope that was fulfilled in Jesus. It, it's, a, it's a joyous thing to think about it, because ever since God created man, and he, he warned him that uh, if he were to step outside his love and sin, why, uh, the day he ate of that tree, he'd surely die. Why, we all know that uh, we live in a sinful, dark world, because Adam and Eve did do just that. They sinned, and they died spiritually, and and uh, that's been the case ever since. The world is a is a dark place, and I know many of your listeners are no doubt struggling with the hopelessness and despair of this day, but uh, it's great to be able to think about and rejoice in the fact that God not only began to promise a Messiah, 
but he sent him. And after long centuries of promises, Jesus came on the scene, and we're enjoying the great relationship a person can have with God, his creator, because of that uh, long-awaited fulfillment. Mm. You know, we hear God's first promise of a Savior in Genesis. And when you think about the generations uh, through Abraham and his family, when you think about that period of time between the end of the Old Testament and the start of the New, that long-awaited one coming and recognized by Andrew, uh, a follower of John, if I'm not mistaken, making the pronouncement, Mm -hmm. we have found the Messiah, that is such a profound (laughs) statement to be made. Um, I I wonder if we fully appreciate um, his insight which had to have been inspired by the Holy Spirit, that we have yeah. found the Messiah. This is the long-awaited one. Yeah, and John actually is writing it to Israelites, but also he's obviously got Gentiles on his mind, too, because that is John one forty-one that you just quoted, and he goes on and says, which translated means Christ, the Christos, so that uh, God's purposes were never parochial or just uh, merely for a certain uh, nation, but rather they were universal. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So you can just sense the thrill of Andrew as he's telling his brother, we have found the Messiah. And I think even in our culture, we understand that word Messiah uh, you know, we talk about messianic hopes, and and just almost instinctively, all of us are tempted to put our hopes in some kind of a savior of one sort or another. And sadly, any hope that is in someone or something other than Jesus, the Christ, why you'll be sorely disappointed. And so I want to just say to everyone listening today, There is one who will never disappoint you, and he is the one that Andrew was waiting for and Peter was waiting for, the whole nation of Israel was longing for, because God had promised him from the very beginning, and he'd promised that he would deliver us from our sin. And so when the angel announced Jesus uh, to Joseph, you know, he said, I want him named Jesus, Yahshua, Yahweh, the Lord saves. And that's really what the name Jesus means. And Matthew one twenty one says, uh, name him Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And there's nothing, nothing to compare with that kind of a savior. So all that is wrapped up in that little statement. We found him. We found him. And a couple verses later, uh, it goes on and says, we found the one. We found him of whom Moses wrote in the law and the prophets. They all wrote about him. So, yeah, he's the long-awaited one, and he has come. And we're eagerly uh, going to celebrate his birth, and we're looking for his return. So in one sense, he's still we're still awaiting him because we know he promised he wouldn't. Uh, he was leaving, but he'd come back for us. Well, we're so grateful that we can celebrate and long for his returning because he fulfilled his purpose in his first coming, not to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. We have have gained access to the throne of grace through the, the 
um, ministry and the life of Jesus Christ, his death and his resurrection. It's such an amazing thing to anticipate his second coming because of his faithful first coming, fulfilling everything that God had promised in his word. That's so true. In fact, many of the prophecies of the Old Testament, you know, three quarters of the Bible was written before before Christ, uh, centuries before Christ. And it, it's like I was thinking of it the other day. Uh, you can, you know, there's what, 380 million of us in America? And with three lines, you can send me, uh, you can write my address, my name, my street, and the city. And it gets to me. And, and it's a unique addressed envelope and message card to me. And if you go worldwide, there's 8 billion of us. And with four lines, you can, you know, it, it, I kind of stay shocked at that, that, you know, my name, my street address, my city, and then just put down below it, USA, and it'll get to me. And I think of the prophecies of the Old Testament as kind of like that, only God gave so much more than just four of them. He gave dozens and dozens of specific promises and predictions. And so I like to think of it as a prophetic address that Jesus came, and he's the only one that could fulfill that. I mean, he's, it was so specific, and it's one of the reasons why I thrill at the, at the miraculous nature of the Bible. Uh, people sometimes ask me, Scott, why do you believe the Bible? And I'll tell you, there are many, many reasons I believe it. But uh, near the top of that list, I mean, not only does it read like no other book, and it's it's fed my soul and given me relationship with my Lord, but right near the top of that list is that no one can, could write the prophecies of the Old Testament and see them perfectly fulfilled in a person centuries later. Uh, this this is God's word. So he began, as you said, making those promises in Genesis 3. And the first promise let us know that that, that our deliverer, our Messiah, would be a man. He would be of the human race. Uh, but he said it, you know, he said it in a way that kind of hints at the virgin birth, because uh, he said the seed of the woman will will bruise the head of the seed of the serpent. He said, your seed and her seed will be at enmity with each other, and she, or he, I should say, the seed of the woman will bruise your head. He was speaking directly to the serpent, and you will bruise his heel, and you can just see a picture mm-hmm. of a heel coming down on the head of a serpent, and you see a picture of the cross. And uh, But that phrase, the seed of the woman, we wouldn't normally say that, but it's a hint, it's a, it's a pre-shadowing of the fact that Jesus wasn't tainted with Adam's sin. Mm. He was born of a virgin, and so God overshadowed Mary. And the Holy Spirit came upon her, and the angel told her, for this reason, the holy offspring will be called the Son of God. And so the very first promise uh, uniquely qualifies Jesus to be the one who could save me, because he didn't have any sin of his own. He was sinless. And so he could enter the human race and be my Savior. So that's 
I like to think of that as the very first line of the address, that it, God wouldn't do it through some mechanism or something. No, he would come personally and enter the human race. And so our Messiah comes from the race. Amen. But then he didn't leave it there. You know, he he began to narrow it down, much like an address does. He said, he'll come from a nation. Well, I tell you what, we're going to take a nation. quick break. And we'll continue that part of our conversation in just a moment. Again, we're talking with Pastor Scott Gilchrist, and we're talking about the long-awaited one, the Messiah. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Pastor Scott Gilchrist of the Downtown Bible Class and Southwest um, Bible Church. We were talking just before the break about the unique address of, of of Jesus. First of all, that he would come in the form of a man. His birth would be divine, but also um, that he would come to a specific nation. This is how we would identify him as the Messiah. And just before you were about to talk a bit about that, we went to break. Talk about the, the, the nation that Jesus was born into and how that uh, contributes to his unique address, if you will. Yeah, the first the first few lines of the prophetic address are in the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 12, God chose out Abraham, and he said, you know, I'm going to make a great nation of you, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. And so we, a lot of our music, we sing, Jesus is the king of Israel, you know, the king of the Jews. And as I said earlier, his purposes are worldwide, but but his his uh, the promise of this Messiah was that he would come through Israel, and not just through the nation Israel, but you remember Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, and Jacob had twelve uh, sons, and we think of the twelve tribes of Israel. His name was changed to Israel, and uh, in the end of Genesis, when Jacob or Israel was old and and pronouncing a blessing on his twelve sons. He gave kind of the future of their of their lives, and he picked one of them out, and I I would say God did, and he he picked Judah out, and he said the scepter will not leave the tribe of Judah. He will be the royal family, and it the scepter will not leave until Shiloh, another term for Messiah, until he comes, and so he narrowed it down to the tribe of Judah. So you have. First, he's going to be of the human race, and then of Israel, and then of a specific tribe, and then of a specific family. He said uh, in some of these great prophecies over the centuries in the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah 11 begins by saying uh, a, a shoot will spring up from the, from the stem of Jesse. And uh, if your readers are, or your uh, listeners are familiar with with their Bible, why you remember when David was anointed king, he was kind of their last choice uh, of mm-hmm. the sons of Jesse. Samuel came and he looked at the first one. He said, "Surely this is the one. This is the anointed one." And and God said, "No, uh, man looks on the out- outward appearance, but God looks on the heart." And then they said, "Well, do you have any other sons?" He said, "Well, finally, he said, well, I got one, but he's just he's just tending sheep. He's just a shepherd." And they brought David before Samuel, and God told Samuel, this is the one, anoint him. And so we know, uh, centuries later, Jesus is still known as the son of David. 
So you just see this amazing prophetic address get more and more specific, and each element of it uh, teaches us something about our great Savior, this one that we call Jesus the Christ. It's really not his last name, but rather uh, the fact that he is the anointed one. He's the one that really can meet our needs and fulfill our hopes. It's interesting in our culture today, we have this sense of a need for a savior, but don't necessarily recognize, as was the case when Jesus came, we don't recognize him as the savior we need most of all. We might look to uh, to others who have celebrity or power or influence as a way to lift us out of um, what we find ourselves in and what a mistake we make and what a mistake generations during the time of Jesus appearing made uh, when they didn't recognize him as the fulfillment of what scripture clearly taught in the Old, Test- uh, Old Testament written before his appearance in anticipation of the coming Savior. Yeah, and I think actually that's one reason why we're living in a day that is characterized by cynicism. Because most of us, I think we instinctively put our hope in something or someone, and people put their hopes in politicians, and they get let down. Military leaders, and they're disappointed. And maybe closer to home, uh, people are tempted to think, if I could just find the right man, Mr. Wonderful, or the right woman, and we think uh, another human could be the fulfillment of our hopes and dreams. And obviously, that, that just doesn't work out. And we see it all around us. Uh, we were designed for relationship with God. And the Messiah, the, the one we can hope in, is the very Son of God. He's not just the Son of David. He's the Son of God. And he really can meet our needs and so I just, I love to, to proclaim him. You know, John the Baptist was sent to, uh, to get people ready. And he, would, he had been told right out of the Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 40, get up on a mountain and proclaim. And he said, well, what should I call out? And God told him, here is your God. Behold, your God. And John, when he came to this earth, He said, I'm getting you ready for the Lord. And then when he saw Jesus, he said, there he is. There he is, the Son of God. And today, 20 centuries later, uh, I think of those who pointed me toward Jesus. And I took him at their word. And I took him at his word. And I put my faith in him. And he is indeed, like the songs say, you know, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Mm. I love the Christmas music because it so reflects yes. our hearts when we found Jesus to be what he said he was. I just I love that line, the hopes and fears of all the years, and that's throughout all of human history, were met in Jesus Christ, the babe in the manger on that night. God keeping the promise he had made. Uh, to his people Israel, who were to then tell the rest of the world that he kept his promise. I often think about Bethlehem. It was just another night uh, in in Bethlehem. Most of the world were um, painfully unaware that God had made a promise and was keeping it on that night in what was to follow. Uh, how gracious and good God is to have made it possible for us through his son to know him, to have our sins forgiven, 
uh, to be reconciled to him, to receive the righteousness of Christ, to enjoy his grace and mercy. What a tremendous gift. And I I, I sometimes um, am saddened that so many don't get it. Christmas is so commercialized that we miss the central uh, fact of, of Christmas that we ought to be celebrating. Uh, that's so true. And that when I was mentioning cynicism, most people have had their hopes dashed mm-hmm. by other hopes. And some people just di- even dislike this season. I was talking to someone the other day that said, just hoping to make it to January 2nd, you know. And I understand that if you haven't met him, uh, to try to get your hopes and, fi- and dreams fulfilled in, in the celebration itself or all the trappings or all the materialism, you know, the stuff we get. Why, that's so empty compared to really knowing him and having what you just said, the forgiveness of our sins and relationship with the one who created us. This is what we were made for. And I think it is appropriately, you know, a huge, the biggest celebration of the year. God became man and dwelt among us. I was reading the other day in Isaiah, uh, after John had said, you know, behold your God, why Isaiah looks ahead to the final days and he says, it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God for whom we've waited that he might save us. This is the Lord for whom we've waited. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. He will swallow up death for all time. Let me just stop right there. People all around us today are afraid of dying. And some of the worst ramifications of this pandemic is people just caught up and bound with fear. And the scripture says he'll swallow up death for all time. The Lord will wipe tears away from all faces. And he wrote this eight centuries before Jesus came. And we wouldn't have known all the details without that. And then we see it fulfilled in the life of Jesus that he actually died in my place so that I don't have to fear death. I can, I, I can know that my sin has been paid for and Jesus rose from the dead. So I, I, I have a hard time talking about Christmas without usually sliding over and talking about Easter a little bit. You know, <laughs> well, the resurrection of Christ, because he didn't just, he was, yes, he was humbly born and lived an, an amazing life, but he came to die in my place. So as you said, that changes everything. Absolutely everything. We're talking with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. We're talking about the long-awaited one as we are anticipating celebrating the birth of Jesus. Stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. But most importantly, we're talking with Pastor Scott Gilchrist about the long-anticipated one, the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Alpha and Omega, wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, the Mighty God. You know, it's interesting to me, Israel had access to the scriptures that spoke of him. You had the testimony of uh, the, the patriarchs uh, of Israel. Um, there were so many specific words given about who and where and what. And the fact that he wasn't recognized by the majority, um, that they misunderstood his purpose in coming, it's very disheartening, and I suppose it shouldn't be because I live in the 21st century and we are guilty of the same thing. We have the completed scriptures, and yet we misunderstand the purpose of his coming. But can you talk a little a bit about that, the fact that he wasn't recognized as 
uh, as the Son of God, as God's fulfilled promise, Emmanuel, God with us, and what his purpose in coming was ultimately to be. Yes, that's, uh, I hear you. It's the same. The first century was much like the 21st century. And often people would expect Messiah to come uh, in grandeur and glory. And one of the most famous uh, uh, prophecies of the long-awaited one, Jesus, is in Isaiah 53. And he, well, let me just read it. He, who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root at a parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised, and we did not esteem him. They ridiculed him when he came, and they said, he's just the son of a carpenter. And they expected him to be this great conqueror. And of course, they were mixing up the fact that first he came to die, and he came to humble himself to the point of death. And so Isaiah's uh, prophecy not only describes him as despised and the man of sorrows, and the one that they could spit upon and ridicule, and people today use his name in blasphemous curses. And and they said to him when he hung on the cross, if your God come down from there. But he came to lay his life down for us. And so Isaiah's prophecy goes on and describes it, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. People today will say, well, if, if Jesus is God, then how come there's all this trouble in the world? Jesus entered this world and bore our sin, which is the cause of all the trouble in the world, and took it to the cross. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that Isaiah goes on and says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us is turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So you, you talk about missing him, and the ultimate miss was that they, they crucified him. And he wasn't a martyr. He didn't come, and he wasn't victimized. He said, I came to lay my life mm-hmm. down for the sheep, but he took it up again. And he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will return that and take you to myself that where I am there, you might be also. So, yes, uh, in the first century, he was missed. And, and like you said, it's heartbreaking. I, I heard a man say the other day, why would anyone stay in the dark when they can turn to the light of the world? And I wonder the same myself. I, I marvel at unbelief and that people will, I took a drive the other night and I love all the lights, mm-hmm. and, you know, the beauty of the, but I was amazed that I saw Disney figures and I saw snowmen and I saw, I saw very few replicas of the real reason we're celebrating, you know, this, the birth of this savior. So, uh, that's always been the case. And Jesus actually said, you know, 
when he was here, he said, the broad road, there's a wide gate and a broad road that leads to destruction. But he said, enter by the narrow gate and the narrow way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so in the midst of that kind of many people missing it, why just yesterday I a man came up to me after we had worshipped and had our, our Christmas Sunday celebration, and after the first service he came up and told me of a man that he'd seen come to know Jesus on his deathbed. And I just rejoiced that God is still calling people out. And he did just what Andrew did. This guy, not only he, he, was, he was speaking unbelief in the hospital bed, but my friend just explained to him, no, Jesus is the only one who can save you. And he told him the good news, the good news of a great joy. And he said, the man believed. And then he immediately started asking for uh, Christmas cards that he could send to tell others what he found. And I thought, wow, it's just like, just like Andrew in John 1. There is such a difference between the dark despair of mm-hmm. life without the Lord and the joy and the light and the forgiveness that this Jesus brings to us. I love uh, Jesus being called the Prince of Peace, and we so lack that in our our culture today. We settle for sentimentality over the deeper joy of uh, knowing the God for whom the world has waited. What's the best way for those of us who know him, who have experienced the fulfilled promise of God, who have come to know Jesus uh, and to uh, put our trust and confidence in him. What's the best way for us to celebrate and honor him as he is now seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for us uh, in a way that not only is um, fulfilling to us to recognize what God has done, but also to extend the love of Christ to others who are relying on sentimentality and um, balloon figures in their front yard to muster up some feeling of joy that's simply going to fade away once the champagne of the, the new year fades? Mm-hmm. Well, I think, first of all, we need to enjoy him ourselves. Mm-hmm. And that there's something contagious about someone who who's in love, you know, and you can you, you can just see it. And we Christians, we, we love him because he first loved us. And his spirit produces love and joy and peace, like you said, and and self-control and gentleness. And the fruit of the spirit, in other words, that Christ-like life, is very attractive to people. But then we need to tell them, uh, we've found him. Just like Andrew told Peter and, and Philip told Nathaniel, we have found the Christ. And uh, we have the privilege of speaking. John was told you know, he said, you're not the light, but you've come to bear witness to the light. And so he made that very clear. He said, I'm not the light, but I've come to bear witness to the light. And when he saw Jesus, he pointed people to him and literally, but it metaphorically, it's meant to teach us that our message is a person. And so we have the privilege. My, my friend had the privilege of pointing someone in the hospital room to Jesus and uh, we have daily opportunities, particularly this time of year. I think, you know, we can invite them to come mm-hmm. and hear about him, to worship him. Uh, the, the, a lot of people will come to a Christmas service just almost out of tradition, but maybe, in fact, I'm seeing it more this year than maybe ever. 
people are are seeking out something to hope in. And we know that we have the hope of the world. So we can point them to him and make sure that they know that our message isn't just about family and sentimentality and things that we love because so many people uh, are from broken, dysfunctional families, and they've been let down by those closest to them. But we know one whom the Bible says, he who hopes in him will not be disappointed. Uh, what a what a great hope we have, and we should enjoy and, and talk about as much as possible, it seems to me. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us, I know uh, Christmas Eve you have a service at Southwest uh, Bible Church for folks who would like to come and worship or perhaps just hear the gospel presented. When can our listeners um, enjoy that with uh, Southwest Bible? Yeah, we're going to gather at 3 uh, on, on December 24th, Christmas Eve, 3 and 5. And we're going to have beautiful music and we're going to be singing about him, uh, the the person of Jesus that you and I have been visiting about, and I'm going to proclaim in as clear a way as possible uh, the hope and the joy that we can have in him. And so that's at 3 and 5 this Friday. And I would invite anyone and everyone. We've got a big auditorium, and we'd love to, to have anyone come that can. Excellent. Well, Pastor, thank you so much for talking with us today. Merry Christmas to you and your family. And um, thank you for once again, just making his great name known. We have found the Messiah. Well, thanks so much, Georgina. It's great to visit with you and you and your family. Have a a very Merry Christmas. And uh, I appreciate all that you do to point people to Jesus over the airwaves. So keep it up. Thank you so much. God bless. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in just a few moments to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. So appreciate Pastor Scott taking the time to talk with us about the uh, the anticipated one, the long-anticipated one. And I hope you're opening the scriptures and reading the prophetic words about the coming of the Messiah. And that's a regular habit so that when we come to the occasion in which we're celebrating his birth, um, we're not as surprised as those who should have expected him to be precisely what he was coming precisely when he did. In any event, what a, a joy it is to be able to celebrate his birth and to anticipate and look forward to his return, which is uh, coming tomorrow. We're going to talk with Pastor Rich Jones of Hillsborough Calvary Chapel. And on Wednesday, we'll talk with uh, missions pastor um, Di Indicott. Uh, all in anticipation of Christmas. And so we're going to be talking about various aspects of this celebration. On Thursday, we'll share the Hope College Christmas Vespers, as well as uh, replay a conversation I had with uh, Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible Church. On Friday, focus on the families of Christmas Carol. And uh, during Christmas week, the period between Christmas and New Year, the best of the Georgine Rice Show from 2021. So that's what's coming up in the days, uh, in the days ahead. So looking forward to all of that. Well, this week we step into the events of the nativity. We consider the miracle of the eternal word entering the world as a human child, which 
it, it's just an incredible thought. We learn lessons of faith from the people that God chose to play a part in those events, and we celebrate the good news with great joy for all the people that the angel declared. Well, in the backstory of Jesus' birth, we meet another priest. His name is Zachariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Luke tells us that they were both of priestly descent. They were faithful and godly people, but they also suffered greatly. Their long marriage had been childless, and they were, well, now old. Then a miracle happened. The angel Gabriel spoke directly to Zechariah that God would answer their decades-long anguished prayers. They were going to have a son. Well, there's more to that story. Uh, the story could have ended there, and it would have been delightful um, for Christmas you know, to think about the sadness of being replaced with joy. But there's an unexpected and dark note in the tune that we can't ignore. Now, because Zachariah struggled to believe Gabriel's message, and who wouldn't, he was struck mute for the entirety of Elizabeth's pregnancy. He was silent. He went uh, from being a respectful, a respectable, articulate priest of God to an old man who could only communicate with hand signals. And of course, people had no idea any of that would be restored. It was humbling, even humiliating. But what we are um, to make of this troubling turn is a good question. Well, God is always doing a thousand good things in every situation, even if we can't see them. God's heart of compassion is still at work here in providing this old couple with a son of joy. His power is manifested and eventually using this son to usher redemption into the world. He would become the famous baptizing prophet in the wilderness, calling God's people back and pointing ahead to Jesus. What a backstory it was. Well, the story of Zechariah shows us that God continues to do his good and gracious work, even with our brokenness and disbelief. Zechariah's stumbling faith was no hindrance to God's power. Neither is ours. Zechariah's forced silence was frustrating and it was humbling. In reality, however, it was a gift. Through this negative miracle, God showed Zechariah and the world that these events were not mere coincidences. This silent season demonstrated that God was on the move in a new and powerful way to bring life into the world, to keep his promise and to manifest his son. Well, as a result, Zechariah's story didn't end with judgment, but with God opening his mouth once again to proclaim the beauty of God's mercy. You can find that story in the first chapter of Luke, uh, verse 5 through 25, and then later in that same chapter, Luke 1, verses 57 through 66. Zechariah was the first one to learn God was doing something amazing, that he was going to fulfill his promise in his seeing, in his hearing, something God's people had been waiting for, the long-anticipated one. What do you imagine Zechariah thought or might have wondered during his months of silence? And what does this story highlight about God and salvation? Well, once again, I think it's important to emphasize that God is always doing a thousand good things in every situation, even when we don't see them. His heart of compassion is yet at work here in providing this couple with a son of joy and providing events in our lives that result in joy. Whether he calls us into his presence and we enjoy him forever or he sustains our life here and we have the opportunity to walk with him, to know him and to serve him well. I think about being in a hospital bed, waking up from a coma earlier this year and seeing God's goodness in the midst of that circumstance. And I, at the time, I didn't know if God was going to call me home or if he was going to allow me to continue in this life for another season. What I did know and what I was certain of during that season that was difficult, it was painful, it was confusing, it was challenging. What I did know is that God is good. 
that he is doing a thousand good things in every situation, even when we can't see them. And he was at work in my heart and in my life, revealing aspects of his character that has enhanced my walk with him, has deepened my love and regard for him, my trust and my hope in him. And he is always doing a thousand good things in every situation, even when we can't see them. I don't know what your Christmas looks like, but what I do know is that God is faithful, that he is good, that his intention is that we would know him through his son. And I hope all of us will take full advantage of just basking in the love of Jesus that he lavishes on us and his righteousness, which he gives us, the word says, and the Holy Spirit he has gifted to us. All of those things are a gift from God and that we will would, out of that abundance of joy and gratitude, we would extend the love of Christ to others who don't yet know him and are relying on that uh, sentimentality that takes us through the season, leaving us somewhat empty at the end of it all. Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing and Sam Moppin for engineering. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.